We'll stand for the reading of God's Word, found in the Gospel of John in our series, beginning in chapter 16. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he's offering a service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. May be seated. Thank you, Pete. I invite you to join me in prayer this time, please. Father, we come again in the strong name of Jesus with the daunting task of proclaiming his word to his people. Father, forgive the sins of the one who stands before you, for they are many. Enable me, O God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to be a vessel of honor this day, so that your people may hear your voice, believe your gospel, and find life in him alone. Father, we want to see Jesus. And may your Holy Spirit fill this vessel, that he might have the preeminence in everything in this service, especially now. In Jesus' name, amen. Ever wondered what it was like to be there when Jesus walked on the earth? Imagine watching Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, or walking on water, or even casting out demons. The disciples lived with Jesus for about three years, and now he is telling them goodbye. This is not good news for them. This grieves them deeply. Jesus acknowledges their grief, then promises to send another helper to them. 
What I want us to see in this text by the power of the Holy Spirit is that Jesus will complete the work that the Father has sent him to accomplish, even in the face of hostile opposition. Once completed, he will send the Holy Spirit to his people. The Holy Spirit will come to afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted. Who is the Holy Spirit? And what is his mission? Besides being the third person of the Trinity, John 16 shows us that he provides divine protection when God's people face unreasonable persecution. And that's in the first four verses of this text. Jesus is informing his disciples of the perilous way that he has to take. He will be falsely accused, ridiculed, and rejected by his own people and handed over to the Roman authorities. The Prince of Peace will be judged as a terrorist. He will be scourged and sentenced to the most hideous form of capital punishment, crucifixion. So Jesus warns his disciples of the inevitable dark and violent persecutions on such level that if it were possible, could cause them to fall away. These men and their families will be hated because of their association with Jesus. Why would anybody in their right mind want to hate Jesus? He went about doing good. D.A. Carson said in his commentary on this text, he says, usually the judgment we make and the opinions we form say as much about us as they do about objects or persons being considered. From this perspective, Carson writes, hatred directed toward Jesus is utterly unreasonable. The world willfully doesn't know Jesus, nor does it want to know him. Paul tells us in Romans 1 that the world suppresses the truth of unrighteousness. It suppresses the truth of God in their own unrighteousness. And so the disciples, they must think that they will face this unreasonable, irrational, and severe hatred and face it without Jesus. They become even more grieved. For as long as Jesus was physically present with them, they were comforted. His presence with them attracted all of the opposition away from his disciples. But now he tells them that he is leaving. He's going away. These men seem to be more concerned about his departure than his destination. But what these men and disciples don't know is that another helper will be with them. At all times, in every place, and under every circumstance. So the Holy Spirit has come. And not only does he provide protection, he is the very fulfillment of the Lord's eternal plans. And we see this in verse 5 and 6 of the text. Jesus is going to the one who sent him. He must finish the work which his father had entrusted to him alone. And what is this work? The, the Lamb of God 
who was slain before the foundations of the world is Jesus Christ himself. And he has come bodily to take away the sin of the whole world. As God's spotless lamb, Jesus will live in humble obedience to the law of God. And he will be offered up as a substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of his people. Therefore, Jesus must face the pain and the agony of the cross alone so that all of his people may experience the joy and the peace that we all long for. No cross, no atonement, no cross, no grave, no cross, no resurrection, no cross, no ascension, no cross, no Pentecost. So where's the advantage that Jesus speaks of in verse 7 of this text? It's none other than the Lord's promises have been fulfilled in the coming of the Holy Spirit. Jesus must accomplish the work of redemption so that the Holy Spirit could apply this work in the hearts and lives of God's people. The bottom line, my friends, is that the disciples desperately needed Jesus to return to his Father. The Bible tells us that every time Jesus taught them, every time he spoke to them, all it did was make them more perplexed. They were puzzled. And they couldn't figure out what he was saying or who he was. And they went about arguing about what he had to say. They had questions. And they had disputes among themselves. And they competed with each other for first place with Jesus. But within a few hours... Peter will deny him three times, and the rest of them will scatter and abandon their friend. But after Pentecost, when the promise of the Father descended into the church, Luke describes these same frightened cowards in Acts chapter 4 and verse 31. Listen to them. Luke says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And spoke the word of God boldly. Jesus did not exaggerate here in this text. It is for their advantage, for their good, that he goes away. The Holy Spirit's presence in this this church and in our lives guarantees that Jesus is no longer localized to just one place. And that's what we see in verse 8 through 11 of this text. When Jesus returns to his Father, he promised to send the Holy Spirit, not to the world, but to the church. The Holy Spirit will come to dwell and live in the hearts of God's people. And in doing so, he will create an inseparable witness with the church, becoming the glory in our midst. The Holy Spirit will transform these men. And together, this Holy Spirit-filled church will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. These men will not become spectators into God's expansion program of expanding his kingdom. These men and those who believe in their testimonies, you and I, we become participants in convicting the world of sin. Simply put, my friends, the Holy Spirit will enable the church 
to bring the world to a self-conscious recognition of personal and collective sin. And what is the sin of the world? It's unbelief in the Lord Jesus Christ. The world rejects Jesus and thus denies truth. And it doesn't voluntarily turn to him. The world doesn't even discern their need of Jesus as a savior. But you and I are proof positive that the Holy Spirit of God removes every obstacle so that anyone who finds themselves in bondage to sin can be rescued by believing the gospel. Not only will the Spirit-filled church convict the world of its sin, but it will convict it of its own righteousness. The world thinks that everything else is right except Jesus. God says in Isaiah 64 and verse 6 that there is a righteousness that comes from the world and it is filthy rags in the scent and the sight of Almighty God. John chapter 5 and verse 16, we read the story of the Pharisees who in their efforts to pursue the righteousness of God, their own righteousness, sorry, they observed the Sabbath. They were so caught up in observing the Sabbath that they had no compassion for one of their own who had been paralyzed for 38 years. Self-righteous people do not usually see themselves as lost or as sinners. They tend to see themselves as basically good. George Barner did a, a research just this, this year, around April and May of this year, and he, he notes that many adults believe that they will go to heaven as a result of their good works. Broadly speaking, Barna says that this is the most common perception among Americans who never made a commitment to Jesus as well as those who profess faith in Christ. John told us early in chapter 3 that even Nicodemus, a rule of the Jews, he needed to be born again. You need to be born again, my friends. And that is what the Holy Spirit is here to teach us. And so since the vindicated Jesus is returning to his Father, the Holy Spirit will reveal Jesus' righteousness in order to convict the world that the only right thing in the entire world is Jesus himself. Holy Spirit-filled church will also convict the world of the judgment because the prince of this world is judged. Yes, there is a coming judgment, but Jesus is speaking here of the judgment that took place on the cross. Mind you, the world sees the cross as the place where Jesus was condemned. But Jesus insists that the cross is the place where the world is condemned. And the prince of this world has been utterly defeated. That's why James could write and tell us to this day that demons tremble at the sound of the name of Jesus. So Jesus' work on the cross is the crucial turning point in the history of redemption. The cross is that place where the world has gotten it absolutely wrong. You and I as believers in the Lord Jesus, we find victory in the cross. On the other hand, the world in their unbelief stands under the wrath and judgment of a loving and precious Lord who says in John chapter 3 and verse 36, he who doesn't believe this moment is condemned already. And so the Holy Spirit comes and he provides limitless power to God's redeemed people 
so that you and I could actively participate in the expansion of his kingdom, even in enemy territory. Dr. Carl Bates of Amarillo, Texas, notes that if God called his Holy Spirit out of the world, about 95% of what we are doing in this country as Christians would go on. We would brag about it. And so his question to us is, what are you doing that you can't get done unless the power of Almighty God falls on your ministry? The Holy Spirit will not only convict the world, but he will transform the church. He will guide the apostles into all truth. He will provide the church with a divine perspective so that the world might believe in Jesus. He will organically inspire these particular men in this text. And together they will complete God's revealed truth as he breathes upon them. That is the Bible. And then he will use their testimonies to illuminate you and me today as we live out our calling in a world that is hostile to Jesus. He won't give us new revelation. There's no new revelation. This is the plans and purposes of God in its fullness for us. And the Holy Spirit will illumine our way as we open this book and feast upon its pages. I don't, I don't urge you to study the Bible just so you could argue religion with others or to show off your grasp of spiritual things. I urge you to study God's word, to behold Jesus in its pages, to become more and better acquainted with our Lord. As we share Christ with others, the Holy Spirit will use the word of God he has taught us. It's a privilege to witness. It's his job to convict. Perhaps some of us need to stop acting like prosecutors so that he can use us as a faithful witness. I know you got that nagging relative. You got that, that loved one or that friend or that co-worker and you want to see them come to Jesus so badly that it aches. Listen, you can't change anybody. I can't change anyone. Only the Holy Spirit can. Stop, stop being the prosecutor and just be a faithful witness. The Holy Spirit will not teach whatever he pleases. He will get his leading from the Father and the Son. And his ultimate purpose? To glorify Christ. He will cause the name of Jesus to have splendid greatness on the whole earth. And how will he do that? Well, beginning with these men, he will transform the common into the precious. Just as Jesus turned common water into fine wine in his first miracle in John, the Holy Spirit will transform dead people into living ones. And he will transform common fishermen and tax collectors into spirit-filled men who turn the whole world upside down. And guess what? He is still working transforming you and me, common and ordinary people. And making us to look like Jesus. So what is this text saying to us this morning? A whole lot. But I want to pick out a few nuggets just for us. I want to remind you that Jesus is saying in this text 
that he has completed the work that he was sent to do, even in the face of hostile opposition. Once completed, he sent another helper, the Holy Spirit, and he sent him to us. His glorious presence with us is here today, enabling us to worship the Lord. And he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. The Holy Spirit's presence signals the dawning of a new age. That's what we call the now and the not yet. Yes, Jesus has defeated the enemy on the cross. Yes, he has won the victory. Yes, people are coming to know the Lord out of great trials and great tribulations. But the truth is, friends, we, 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 we see what's going on around us. And we often think that we are losing, that the enemy is winning. I must agree with you that the serpent of Genesis 3 has grown to become the dragon of Revelation 12. He's crafty, he's sophisticated, and he's more deadly than he's ever been before. And he continues to utilize his diabolical schemes to trap the people of God so that we might fall away. But where sin abounds, grace is more abundant. And so, Christian, you and I, we need the Holy Spirit more than you ever can imagine. The Holy Spirit uses Scripture to teach us about ourselves, that we are created to be dependent on something or someone else to keep us. For those of you who are parents or of you who have attended school plays with little ones, and you watch it and you're there, and then all of a sudden one of the little ones becomes nervous and they forget their lines. And you will hear from the, from the rear of the theater, it's Jesus. Oh, it's no. Moses, stage prompters. That's who the Holy Spirit is in your life. He's whispering in your ear and sometimes shouting loudly to you, it's Jesus. Don't go left. Don't go right. Stop. Pause. Listen. Because he wants to lead you. And a body that doesn't follow its head will become sick. It will atrophy and it will die. This is the principle that I've learned from a lady I've grown to respect greatly, Diane Langberg up in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Several years ago, 30 of us pastors and our wives met for a week to discuss some of the challenges of marriage and family and ministry and how we as men and women can live filled with the Spirit in a world that is contrary to ours. And the first principle she reminds us of is just that. A body which doesn't follow its head will become sick and eventually die. The Holy Spirit enables Christians to imitate Jesus as we face more severe opposition from the world. If the world does not see us reflecting Jesus or see us as a different culture following our head, then the church is not a spirit-filled church. It is not functioning in the way that the Lord has intended it to. The second principle I want to leave you with from Diane is that human beings learn through the seen about that which is unseen. The world needs us. The world needs to know Jesus through us. So who we are, and what we do, and how we conduct ourselves in our families and in the church is to be concrete illustrations for the world to notice the Lord's presence with his people. 
And where the concrete does not point to the eternal, we are not obedient to the Lord. The big mission, as Jesus says in this text, is is to glorify Christ. But the third principle I want to leave you with as we seek to become spirit-filled witnesses of the Lord is that the big mission is lived out in the little missions. The little missions of daily life are the very places where the Lord desires to manifest his glory and thereby lead others to believe. As you enter into the ordinary of your life, faithfully, each day, you will manifest the Lord's glory to a watching world. And the fourth principle I want to leave you with as you contemplate what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Diane says that the gifts of God, when used in obedience to God, bring glory to God. One of the benefits of the Holy Spirit's presence in the church today is that he has granted gifts to each member for the benefit of the entire body. You and I have seen many who have taken the gifts of God and used them for selfish ends, thus bringing destruction and dishonor to the name of Christ. But you know what? It could even be more subtle than that. You and I can take the gifts of God and use them to achieve a godly goal and still dishonor the name of Jesus in the process. We must admit that there's a, there's a, there's a tremendous amount of confusion about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, who he is, what he does, and how are we related to him. I think the enemy has set a trap with this very doctrine. Here's what I mean. There are some Christians who think that the Holy Spirit is so powerful and we as Christians are so, are so powerless that all we need to do is to just watch him do stuff for us. And so they depreciate the value of a robust and deep study of the word of God. And they're those Christians who depreciate and undervalue the spontaneity of joy and enthusiasm in worship. You know who you are. The Holy Spirit, he is here with us to make us become more passionate, whatever our liking, about our relationship and our privilege of being one with Christ. You see, Satan would love nothing better than to divide the body of Christ. And in doing so, the church becomes more vulnerable to his onslaughts. My friends, the world is looking at us. They need to see the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which emanates from a life that is being transformed in Christ. The world needs to see in us the quality of life which makes life worth living. Listen, you got friends and neighbors who are looking at you, and if you can't make it, guess what? They're convinced that there's no hope for them. The world needs to know that the Lord is sovereign, that he is in control, and that all of history is trending toward one great event which lies in the future. And Isaiah saw it. When the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together.
I've seen the movie Glory so many times. And one of the, the scenes in the movie I, that I remember distinctly is, is that one where Morgan Freeman is preparing his men for a battle in, mo, in which most of them will lose their lives. In order to prepare themselves mentally and spiritually, they're singing around a campfire. Freeman then tells the men why he is going into battle. He wants his loved ones to know that he wasn't afraid to face the enemy. That he went down standing up. My brothers and sisters in Christ, we're living in a world where the world thinks that you and I, as the people of God, we are irrelevant. We have nothing to offer. The world doesn't think much of us. If you read the headlines, we, we are not standing tall any longer in this world. But I urge you to embrace the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. I know, twos, I know three is a company. And two is uh, a company and three is a crowd, sorry. But in a very powerful and real way, the Holy Spirit is Jesus Christ himself. He's no, he's no stranger to you. He wants to dwell in you richly so that you and I may experience in a very full measure the presence and power of Almighty God. Especially in a place where you're counted as the enemy. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord enrich you and may the Lord enable you to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit and to follow his path, realizing that one day it will lead to the final glorification of the one who died for us, even Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for this text. We thank you and praise you most importantly for the person of your Holy Spirit. Jesus said many years ago, apart from him, we could do nothing. And we realize this truth so distinctly. Lord, the Holy Spirit is very mysterious. He's not here to point to himself. He's here to glorify Christ. May we not be afraid of him. May we yearn for his presence, his power, his perspective that we might fulfill the purpose to which you have called us. In Jesus' name, amen.